Welcome everyone to the Yogic Studies Podcast. This is episode 35. I'm your host, Seth Powell, and today we are joined by Dr. R.T. Dund, who is Associate Professor at the University of Toronto in the Department for the Study of Religion. R.T. will be teaching an upcoming course, as you know, at Yogic Studies on the Mahabharata. She's the host of the Mahabharata podcast. And we're really excited and honored to have her today to discuss all things Mahabharata. So, Arti, uh, warm welcome to Yogic Studies. Thank you, Sets. Pleasure to be here. Yes, it's 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 a great pleasure to have you here. You know, um, we don't know each other really very well. I actually uh, first discovered your work through your podcast, uh, the Mahabharata podcast, and then I also learned that. Um, uh, a former student of yours is actually one of our um, one of our instructors. That's Dr. Uh, Raj Bolkaran. Is that right? Was he one of your students? Absolutely, the ubiquitous Raj. Yes. Yeah. He, um, he, I have known Raj for a long, long time. Um, uh, going on eighteen years now. Wow. So he was a student in my class. Uh, I watched him go from undergraduate to all the way through his graduate work, and here he is now doing um, some pretty extraordinary things um, on his own podcast and research as an independent scholar, so marvelous stuff. Yeah, well, Raj, Dr. Raj is a great friend of the show, as we say, and a favorite instructor uh, in the yogic studies community. And as you said, doing really exciting and wonder wonderful things kind of in similar spaces as I'm operating in within academic circles, but also pushing the boundaries outside of academia online and using podcasts and educational platforms. You yourself also launched a podcast. So Tell us, let's start there. Tell us a little bit about the Mahabharata podcast. How did that come about for you? Uh, what was the idea to to put that out there? And and kind of what, what's that experience been like for you? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, if I, if I could roll the tape back about five years and say, okay, five years from now, you're going to be doing a podcast. On the, I, I would never have imagined it. I'm a techno dunce. I know absolutely nothing about technology. I'm terribly bad at it. And so the idea that somehow or the other, I would be, I would have... Uh, achieved enough command of uh, this medium to be able to actually talk to people uh, is ex uh, extraordinary uh, to me. Um, why did it happen? How did it happen? Uh, this is really a pandemic baby. Um, my, uh, when I started out, uh, or when the pandemic hit, I was doing a graduate class on the Mahabharata, and uh, you know we caught we we stopped halfway. All of a sudden, the the, the great lively conversations we were having, uh, all of them disappeared, and then all of us were in this vacuum. Uh, so uh, just somehow to deal with the insanity of it all and the isolation. Um, um, I started thinking about how to reach out to my students and um, eventually that morphed into um, into the podcast. So it's been really fun. Um, it took some getting used to, that's for sure. Uh, it's been really fun, but uh, it's been uh, it's been 
I've learned a lot. It's been a lot of work, but uh, my perspective on the Mahabharata has changed. Um, it's taught me a lot, the process. Yeah, this this podcast was also a, a pandemic baby, to use your, your phrase there. Uh, I think we started in May 2020, so maybe around the same time as your podcast, perhaps. It was something I had thought about. You know, you kind of have an idea, a seed of something like that for a while, but you resist it for a long time, I think, in many cases. And then at a certain point, you think, well, time seems right to put that out there. And and uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey of learning how to do this and and what you know the vision of it is and how how it can grow. I was going back and listening to your podcast and the very first episode, you actually tell a bit of a story about the genesis of it. And you were telling this story about how a friend had sent you this text message when Game of Thrones uh, was coming to an end, uh, right. a modern Western epic, um, if you will. Tell us a little bit about that and how, how that might relate to, to the Mahabharata. Well... It's exactly like it, it went exactly like that. So the Game of Thrones, all of us were enthralled, uh, watching it from week to week, and uh, then it was coming to an end. And lots of people were in crisis. Some of my neighbors were in crisis. What happens now? There's never going to be anything uh, like that again. And uh, you still hear this kind of uh, uh, noise uh, out there that it was uh, the best, oh, it's, the Game of Thrones has been the best show on television for a long time. Um, but I really, I mean, I have my critique, I, I loved it too, uh, but I suddenly had my critique of it, and I felt that the adulation was a little over, over the top, um, reflecting perhaps a lack of acquaintance with some of the truly great works of literature. Um, and so I guess I started thinking about, I mean, especially, you know, the greatest of all time. I and mean, let's be serious. Uh, it, it was a great show, um, but the great, you know. So uh, I started thinking about the Mahabharata and um, quickly realized nobody has a clue. Uh, in uh, in the Western world, um, ordinary people do, don't know much about it, if they know anything at all. And so I started thinking about how to make it, that it would be accessible um, to people interested in a new story, mm -hmm. uh, interested in literature, and um, but who know nothing about... Um, Indian history, Indian culture, uh, who are not familiar with the story from a cultural background. So that was my impulse uh, on how to orient mm -hmm. uh, the podcast. And hopefully uh, it's hard. It's hard to keep it so that you're not taking for granted uh, the cultural background, the rich cultural background, people that listeners know all this. Um, and I don't know how successful I've been in walking that line, really. Well, I think, as you said in the episode, there's there's about a billion of you out there who might have some familiarity with this. But for 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 the remaining uh, podcast listeners, we're gonna you know start at the beginning here. Um, 
yeah, there's there's a lot of follow ups there. I, I, I'm I'm going to restrain from going too deep down the Game of Thrones uh, comparative uh, route yeah. here. I don't want to turn this into the Game of Thrones uh, versus Mahabharata uh, podcast episode, but it is interesting to think about that as a modern frame that could kind of bring or hook new readers, new viewers in. I'm sure in the in the classroom it can be kind of a useful tool to get people thinking about maybe the these epics when we'll talk about that term kind of in a in a new and in a fresh way you know um so this the podcast though you you set out and you said we're going to read we're going to retell and relive the entire mahabharata mahabharata is a very very big text is it not it's pretty long yeah how big is it it's um 18 volumes um so 100,000 verses written in 18 volumes so this is it's like back to okay um, so for for those watching on uh, youtube you see this oh. if you're listening arty's got her bookshelf behind her and an entire row of her shelf <laughs> is is that those are the 18 uh, volumes those are the 18 volumes um with commentary um and notes uh, but still a, a very long piece of work um so it's um i i say in the first episode that it would if you were to read it cover to cover it would take easily six months to a year of your life and it's dense it's um it's just uh convoluted windy um and so forth so not an easy text to read so you know, not an easy text to read even for people who have some concept of what it is, what the what the what the primary story is. Yeah. So uh, let's back up a little bit. How did you um, become an expert and scholar on the Mahabharata? How did how did you uh, become a professor in the study of religion and and Hinduism? Take us back a little bit and tell us a little bit about your your uh, your training and and your background. So I started off. I did my undergraduate work in English and in history. So I have those interests to begin with. And where uh, most where was, where was that? This was in the University of Calgary in Alberta, in the western part of Canada. Um, so I, I did my undergraduate work there. Um, but most of the most of the literature that I was reading, most of the history that we were that I was reading was European, um, pretty well all of it. And I was interested. I wanted to do something outside of the European sphere, and really the only place to do any study of um, something non-Eurocentric uh, was in the religion department, uh, you know, and you could bring a, a whole level of critique to that as well. Um, so I started studying, I uh, studying religious studies. And in true religious studies, I discovered, I mean, I obviously knew these texts culturally, I'd grown up, uh, I'm, I'm South Asian, I've grown up in the culture. So I knew these texts culturally, but I wasn't acquainted with them as a scholar. So I started looking first at the Ramayana, which is the seven, which seven volumes, hence more accessible. Um, so I did that for my master's work. And then looking for a PhD project, the obvious thing was uh, the Mahabharata. For that, I went to McGill University in Montreal. And um, uh, so that's really where this 
well, these texts are so vast and so rich, you really can spend uh, the bulk of a lifetime uh, studying them. They're not as widely studied as the European classics, so there's lots of room for discussion there and debate. So um, that's basically what I've been doing for going on 25 years now. It's overwhelming for me to think about the Ramayana as a MA level degree course and then oh you graduate to move to the more lengthy sort of advanced Mahabharata 18 parvan over a hundred thousand shlokas for comparison you know the text that I'm working on still slowly slowly for my dissertation is this 15th century uh, yoga text from South India and it's 290 verses you know right. in five chapters and right. it's taking me so long to to kind of get through this this project and yet in comparison it's um it's just a little you know crumb right of of the vastness of these these types of works the ramayana and the mahabharata so that must be challenging and overwhelming uh to try to do a type of project how do you kind of find your way in to a text like the Mahabharata you have to find specific questions and themes that you want to kind of pursue within this vast literary jungle yeah it absolutely is I mean it's it is overwhelming even after 25 some years of doing it um because uh, well let's just talk about the Mahabharata uh to begin with you read one volume, you're halfway through because the stories are so complex and so involved and have so many layers and layers of uh, nuances that uh, by the time you, you, you start volume one, by the time you get to the end, you've forgotten the beginning. By the time you're in volume three, I mean, there's so much there that uh, you need to go, you need to carry with you as you move through the text. And uh, but 10, volume 10, volume 11, I just, it's just, it's it's a lot. How do you manage it? I mean, you know, I, I can't claim that anybody, there, there are some scholars who are just extraordinary in doing this. Um, but, you know, so as most of us, what we do is you find a theme, you try to you try to um, you you try to trace it through the text or through certain sections of the text. So in my uh, doctoral work and in my early work, I, I I was focused on themes of gender, and there's so much there to do. So I can't even claim to have really contributed more than a few drops to that uh, that that ocean. Um, and now I'm more um, concerned with. Uh, other questions and the endless questions uh, like you said you could spend a lifetime on a text for 300 verses or and you can spend lifetimes on what these texts are there's uh, there's so much to study and uh, and and, uh, and it it's such a joy really it, it's a, it's a universe of its own. Um, it's so uh, rewarding in terms of not only the movement of the narrative, but also in terms of um, the 
philosophical reflection in terms of the the, the moral concerns um, richly stimulating in so many so many ways mm, yeah and and hopefully we can get uh, a little bit deeper into some of those themes that have animated your work and and that you'll be sharing us sharing with us in the in the upcoming online course you know I wanted to ask you just about this term the epics um, you know oftentimes Mahabharata and Ramayana are classified or categorized as epics they're often compared to you know the the western so-called epics the odyssey and the iliad uh what 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 do you make of just this comparison and and using that term do you find it helpful is it useful in your work in your teaching um is it does it make sense to compare the mahabharata and ramayana these texts from a vastly different culture and civilization uh, you know of ancient india yeah. uh, to these western you know european epics I mean, that's a great question. Um, so it's well known that uh, Indian aesthetics does not have a category called epic. So this is a Western import into the study of uh, Indian literature. Indian lit- uh, Indian aesthetic categories are uh, so in in Indian terms, uh, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana are are um, Itihasa mm, and Kabo, respectively, or, um, and also include or draw upon other genres. That said, I do find the term epic to be useful. Um, there's lots to critique about using it uncritically. So in the, much of the work, a lot of the work of the 19th century, even uh, early part of the 20th century, um, the the category of epic was being applied in a in in a, uh, in the sort of fashion where uh, it, it was difficult, uh, or, or at least in some of the scholarship. Scholars had difficulty seeing the text. You're so busy applying uh, this, the, the, the rubric of epic, and then trying to read these texts through that prism that um, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the material of the Mahabharata the Ramayana just didn't make sense to Western scholars. Um, so that was a problematic practice. I call it something like trying to stuff an elephant into the skin of a giraffe, right? The Mahabharata for certain is, you know, something of the hefts uh, of an elephant. And uh, what Western scholars are trying to do is try and make it look like a giraffe. So you're kind of surgically excising the fat of the Mahabharata and trying to make it look lean and athletic, uh, warrior-like, mm. uh, um, as uh, as the Iliad might be considered. Um, are there are there certain within the Western tradition? Are there certain requirements that classify something as an epic? Right. So an epic is generally associated with uh, a narrative about warriors uh, doing extraordinary things in relation to gods, etc. So um, it, it, it very much uh, around a warrior ethos. And to that point, uh, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana certainly have uh, a, a reflect a 
some set, some element of a warrior culture. So on that point, it seems fair to um, bring the notion of epic into conversation with what these texts are. Um, that, uh, but beyond that, uh, these texts are much more. So, um, and so the way I would describe it now to my students is, well, the term epic is as a place to begin the conversation about what these texts are, and uh, it makes it so that uh, students coming into uh, studying them uh, have something to relate to. Okay, so I know what, who Achilles is. Well, now I can think of Urgina, but okay, Achilles and Urgina, that comparison works for a little while, but, um, but at some point it does and it becomes, uh, you know, the Indian material, or suddenly the the the, the Mahabharata uh, goes off or has bigger concerns than uh, the Iliad does, uh, arguably in any case. If you're an Iliad scholar listening to me, sorry about that. But um, certainly, uh, I would say the um, so the, the, the Mahabharata, uh, the Ramayana have have uh, have have a very serious uh, didactic uh, purpose uh, um, aims and um so the so the comparison works for a little while. I think it's useful for a little while, and at some point, uh, but at some point, you need to understand that um, uh, the only the only work is epics if the term is much more elastic than we're used to thinking of it, or at least that nineteenth-century uh, scholars were used to thinking of it. Yeah, thank you. That that that's really helpful. I like that as a as a way in. It's something we're familiar with, and then we can challenge it. Then we can you know. Uh, we can expand and 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 problematize, you know, beyond that. You know, uh, oh, go ahead. No, absolutely, because the the Mahabharata is concerned. Well, let's I'm just speaking of the Mahabharata now. Um, it's concerned. Oh, it's certainly reflecting. It's got the it's got the central narrative is about heroes and heroic culture and um, the, the events uh, of the story are very concerned uh, with all of that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also concerned. It's concerned with the big questions. With the big question, it's going, the Mahabharata takes as its aim everything, everything that is in human experience. It wants to reflect on all of that, which it seems to me goes a little bit beyond, uh, you know, the mandate if there is one of what an epic does. Uh, certainly epics do reflect on big questions, but uh, not, I would say beyond, uh, not, not to the extent that the Mahabharata wants to do. Yeah, sometimes you hear a saying, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, I'm curious where this comes from, actually, but this maybe this is a line in the text that says, you know, everything uh, under the sun is in the Mahabharata, and if it's not in the Mahabharata, it doesn't exist. Something yeah, like something, that. Something to that effect. Yes, yeah. that's a statement that comes up early in the text. Okay. What you find here, you'll find elsewhere. What you don't find, what you find here about dharma, artha, kam, uh, and moksha, you'll find elsewhere. What you don't find here, you're not going to find anywhere else in the world. Uh, okay, so it's you know that's the kind of um, grand statement that right. loves. But on the other hand, you know, there's a fair bit to it. I mean, there's yeah. a, 
the Mahabharata does touch on all kinds of crazy stuff um, coming up in my podcast in the next few episodes. And we'll be talking about like human sacrifice and, you know, men g- giving birth to babies, etc. So, you know, there, there's a lot of crazy stuff there. That, uh, how, um, how far how far into the text are you in your podcast right now? Um, I'm only on, uh, I'm coming up on episode 63 of Heart of It for Gap here on account of, you know, a lot of other sure. things going on. But uh, I'm on episode 63, which is about uh, 30, about 30, 40% into uh, book three. Mm. So I've got, a long way, I've got a long way to go. Long way to go, but you've covered some good ground, though, already. Well, um, yeah, once again, <laughs> you know, it's book three out of 18. So <laughs> 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 the road ahead is, is longer than the road behind. Yes. So, you know, especially for those who uh, maybe you've heard of the Mahabharata, maybe you haven't, maybe you've studied it in detail, maybe not. But but can you give us just kind of a, a you know, a general introduction and kind of overview? Obviously, it's such a huge text as we're talking about. There's so many themes and, and, and complex issues. But what's sort of a general summary and kind of the main issues and themes, um, you know, that, that one would encounter in the Mahabharata? Well, at its center, as you certainly know, and many people will know, at its center, it's the story of one family fighting it out for an ancestral kingdom. So you've got the two uh, sets of cousins, the Pandava, the five brothers, uh, with their common wife, Draupadi. And then you've got, on the other side, their hundred cousins led by Duryodhana. Um, And so there's a conflict around, so the Pandavas are, quote-unquote, the virtue, uh, the nobody in the Mahabharata is perfect, mm. uh, but on the whole, they're the more they're, they are understood. Then the text represents them as the more virtuous. Uh, the Kauravas are more ambitious, um, uh, uh, concerned with uh, retaining uh, the empire. So um, at, at the heart. Uh, that's the conflict, um, and it's going to work its way through all kinds of dynamics until there's go- they're going to come to a point of no return uh, in a war. Uh, the war will take um, will involves uh, eighteen million people. Uh, will take eighteen days to fight, um, and at the end of it, pretty well everybody will be dead. Something like perhaps uh, 10 to 11 named people uh, will be alive and there'll be random others whose names we don't know just ran away from the battlefield in the last few days. Uh, But uh, but, uh, 11 uh, named characters will remain alive of the combatants in the war. And uh, then there'll be a lengthy reflection after that on the bigger questions of life, right? Um, You've lost all your children how do you deal with loss? How do you deal with grief? How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with guilt? If you're the person who instigated the war or who could have stopped it but didn't, uh, and now you have to live with, well, it's because of me or my ambition or what have you, uh, that all of this is kind of about how do you deal with that? Uh, how do you continue in the world um, knowing um, everybody you loved is dead? is gone how do you continue in the world 
um, what's the place of, of violence? What's the appropriate place of violence? What's the appropriate place uh, for um, for human endeavor? Do we have any control over our existence and our experience at all? Or is it that the gods control us? Uh, is it, you know, what can, uh, to what extent do we contribute to what we experience in our lives? And to what extent are we, you know, subject to uh, the whims of the world, to what happens to us. So these are, are some of the, the oh, these are universal questions, um, uh, basic foundational questions for, for all beings, all human beings. And uh, so the Mahabharata, on the one hand, is this very intense narrative. On the other hand, it's a reflection as well on all of these bigger questions on how to be in the world um, when you know uh, this is a place of inevitable loss or ine inevitable grief, suffering, uh, how to be how to find happiness in the world when uh, the, these are some of the inevitable um, conditions of, uh, of life. So the Mahabharata deals with these sort of, in some ways, universal human experiences, human psychology, the nature of the human condition in kind of one of the most intense human conflicts possible that of war so it, on the one hand it's sort of universal and transcends time and place and culture on the other hand it's very specific to the indian cultural you know bedrock and civilization it comes out of a particular history and cultural context what can you tell us a little bit about the history of the mahabharata as a text i know this is a big question it's a debated question about its origin, its history, its authorship, its dating. It's a, it's, a, it's a question that today has become very politicized for various reasons in India because of the way in which the Mahabharata is received as a, as a sacred text, as a scripture. Um, what, what, what can you tell us about kind of what you and, and, and other Mahabharata scholars, you know, what's sort of a general consensus or where, where the issues of debate, um, you know, about the, the Mahabharata's past? I mean, this is, uh, as you say, this is a very big question. So uh, let's talk about dates. So traditional Indian understanding might be that uh, the Mahabharata is based on real events that occurred, you know, in the distant past. And uh, there are certainly, um, uh, there's a, there's a reams of literature on uh, trying to date events in the Mahabharata based on astronomical data uh, and, and what have you. Uh, I can't really speak to that. It's uh, but what I so in in scholarly terms, we understand the Mahabharata to the consensus is probably composed around the turn of the millennium, perhaps about two thousand years ago. Um, we or the scholarly consensus is that it probably is engaging, or it seems to certainly be engaging uh, in in its uh, in, uh, in its reflections and in its stories, uh, a context in which um, 
there's a fair bit of turbulence, cultural, political uh, turbulence uh, in this period of history with the rise of uh, the Mauryas, uh, the, uh, with uh, with Emperor Ashok, with the rise of Buddhism, uh, Jainism, and uh, some of these other traditions, uh, with the competition among these traditions for resources and for royal patronage. And the Mahabharata is, uh, is in conversation with Tacit or otherwise, in conversation with these other traditions, uh, in dialogue with these traditions, and is, is also is responding to some of their, uh, some of their uh, core precepts and some of their contentions. So um, scholarship generally understands the Mahabharata to have uh, one way or the other either composed uh, in in as one giant project or as um, or, or in terms of uh, 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 composed in one giant project or else as a process of um, uh, of compiling um, material that was already pre-existed in oral culture uh, and uh, assembled at this time. Around maybe the turn of that, uh, about 2000 years ago, maybe 22, 2300 years ago, maybe a little less, depending on who you read, uh, but somewhere, uh, somewhere around there. Was... I don't think uh, this is hugely contestable in scholarship that it is certainly concerned with um with 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 new ideas emerging from uh the late from the Upanishads for mm -hmm. example and uh new ideas that are being developed in Jainism and uh, Buddhism yeah etc uh you can see that uh you can see that debate happening and um so I, I think there are good grounds for seeing it as a product of this period of history. Was the Mahabharata, was it considered originally an oral or sometimes called a bardic tradition where these stories that were, were recited orally um, and then, you know, moving, adapting, changing, and then at some point believed to have been written down and, and, and codified in written Sanskrit? It depends who you read. Uh, depends who you read. So there are mm -hmm. different, uh, there are some scholars who say, well, it was a long-standing oral tradition. And there's uh, no doubt that some element of the Mahabharata certainly incorporates um, stories, uh, traditions that were out there in oral culture. So, you know, uh, the Mahabharata, as you certainly know, and a lot of people will know, um, not only tell, tells uh, one primary tale of the Pandavas and the Kauravas, but also has uh, literally thousands of other stories um, incorporated into it. Um, and these stories are probably alive and uh, uh, well known in oral culture, so they get uh, they get drawn into or assimilated into the larger text. Um, so uh, was it originally an oral? Uh, was it an uh, an oral tradition that then becomes um, uh, composed uh, in, in, in 
with some formality um, as a text. Um, depending on who you read, there's uh, there's certainly, for example, one of the uh, the leading scholars of the Mahabharata, uh, Alfred Tabaitl, mm -hmm. argues that well, it was composed as a written work, um, perhaps over a generation, um, with, by a team of uh, scholars. Maybe, maybe not, depending on again or who you read, but. Um, I think the jury's out on that one. Um, my own, certainly my own understanding of it is that um, it, uh, and as we have it, as we receive it, it is um, a, a coherent composition, mm. um, depending on, uh, and then it's a question of, what are the historical uh, reasons for why it came about now under the auspices of um, whose patronage, etc.? What are the historical conditions? Those are things that we can't. We, you know, there's a lot of debate about. Yeah, and with I mean such a vast text, hundred thousand shlokas, a text that you know spanned all across the subcontinent and of course beyond the Indian subcontinent, you know, the Mahabharata being a text that traveled throughout Asia, you know, Southeast Asia, East Asia, uh, taking on new forms, adapting, taking on different cultural elements in, you know, in, in other, in other regions like Bali. And um, when one approaches the Mahabharata today and even like, goes to read a translation of the Mahabharata in English or in French or, you know, another language, which version of the Mahabharata, you know, are, are they reading? Um, you know, I always like, like to ask this question of people because it's sort of assumed that there's just this single text, but with a text like the Mahabharata that is so complex, so vast, so many different manuscripts, um, there was this critical edition, right, that this huge project and undertaking that was done by the Bandarkar uh, Oriental Research Institute, carried out over decades, I believe, in the like mid nineteen hundreds. Yes. Um, is that does that tend to be the the sort of gold standard today that most of the translations are based on, or do you have it? Do you have any thoughts about that edition? I know there there were sort of a series of controversies surrounding that the Institute and the edition because of the way that that work was perceived by some in India. But do you have any thoughts about any of that? Yeah. So uh, I do. Um, so the, uh, there are, as you say, many, many Mahabharata traditions, um, many versions of the Mahabharata in different languages and different cultures are widely disparate. Um, and um, there are also uh, many Sanskrit traditions of the Mahabharata. And the, the critical edition project has come under a bit of criticism. Uh, it did come under some uh, criticism and there are still scholars today who say, well, uh, you know, who don't, uh, who don't agree with or certainly all of it. Um, my, speaking for myself, um, my interest is in 
uh, I approach it from a literary angle. I'm interested in historical questions by my sister, uh, but historical questions from a sociological angle. So, um, so if there are different, um, if, if there are interpolations uh, into uh, the text, what are the conditions that would have given rise to these interpolations? Uh, what do they tell us about the people who are interested in interpreting a particular passage in this way rather than that way? Uh, uh, so those are the sort of uh, questions that I would have. Um, but I'm interested in, uh, in it as literature and I work with the critical edition. I think it's a marvelous, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary feat uh, of accomplishment and um, no, probably no work is perfect and the critical edition probably isn't perfect as well. Um, but uh, I think it's a very, uh, um, certainly some scholars have said it's as close to a prototype as we're ever going to get. And it doesn't need to be, or, or uh, it doesn't need to have been the original or even right. uh, close to the original. But uh, I think it's, um, that's the uh, that's certainly the version that I work with. That's the wor version that's seen uh, that's been translated through the University of Chicago Press, um, uh, still in progress. Mm -hmm. So um, I mean, I, I just even working with that. That's the work of a lifetime. And then you know there are other versions of it, um, other recensions. Um, that scholars work on, and that's that's fine as well. But uh, there's more than enough to go on just with the critical edition. And mm -hmm. there are some questions that can only be answered. But if you're asking historical critical questions, then you need to look at well, where did this passage come from, etc. And so forth. Those aren't the questions that I'm asking. Are the questions I'm interested in are uh, about the crafting of community, the the, the development of ideas, uh, and so forth. And I think there's lots to go on just with uh, the critical edition. So that's yeah. Okay, great. So you mentioned, you know, uh, in your doctoral work, you kind of you found the theme of, of gender and the role and agency of women in the Mahabharata. I know you've written a lot about this, uh, at least two books. Um, no, no I, I've got one book on the, on gender. I have some articles. Ah, okay. My current work is, um, you know, very different nature. Okay. So the book, well, the book I wanted to discuss is titled women as fire, uh, or woman as fire, woman as sage, sexual ideology in the Mahabharata. Is, did this grow out of your PhD thesis? It did, this, yeah. This book. So, Can you tell us um, a little bit about it? Yeah, so my interest there was uh, emerged from uh, anybody who's who's read the text or any, has any exposure to it. Well, notes uh, that there's a, a considerable discrepancy between what the text says are about women and what is what should be their role in didactic terms. Uh, what is the nature of women uh, and so forth, what the text says about women and the characters of women as, as, they, as they emerge in the narrative. There's a considerable discrepancy. Women are supposed to be, you know, 
quiet and demure and uh, obedient and compliant and self-effacing, etc. Well, I mean, the women of the Mahabharata just are not that. Um, and so, um, so was, like, like many people, I was interested in uh, that attention. So I started looking, uh, started looking at that, and then I approached that question from uh, various angles um some of them also so and initially and ultimately i was concerned with what is the construction how does the mahabharata construct gender and um you know i found through my study that um there's really no generalization that we can make about it so if if the the text is polyvocal. It speaks at multiple levels. So if uh, if you're on the one hand, it's uh, it's concerned with goals of ultimacy. So if it's speaking at that level, the the understanding of gender is very different from if it's speaking at a more pedestrian, a worldly level about how society should function uh, and so forth. And then the role, the understanding of gender, the construction of women's identity uh, is much more conservative and viewed very differently. So I was intrigued by that, and that's really what I what I do in in that book. Um, my current work is um, a long way away from that. So um, now I'm, at this point, I'm more interested in uh, comparative work. So uh, my the manuscript I'm working on now, it's pretty well uh, complete. Um, Hopefully, all the, the the I is dotted and so forth by the end of the year. But um, at this point, I'm working on comparing the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, these two mm. sort of behemoths of Sanskrit literature. And I'm concerned with um, the architecture uh, of, of, of the two books. So I'm looking at core philosophical uh presuppositions um because one of the the assumptions about uh, both of these texts is that they represent uh, a common genre we call them epics mm. uh, the hindu epics we say uh and we say they seem to have that the, the, they have a common purpose a common idea about dharma um they seem to have a common uh, message um didactically philosophically politically and so forth um i don't think so uh from my work and so um, in, in what I'm doing currently is looking at the two texts um, in relation to each other and um, contending that they're actually very different works. So in, 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 your, in, in your first book, The Woman as Fire, Woman as Sage, is there a particular um, female character or even story that maybe you could share with us that was important for the, for thinking about that work? You kind of mentioned that there are specific ideals for women in theory in the Mahabharata, but that then kind of in reality on the pages sort of 
different things transpire that 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 really that yeah. challenge those notions or um yeah share with us maybe something well there, there are there's, there's there are there's so much there um and certainly if you think of uh the main women characters in the Mahabharata none of them really fit into uh, a stereotype of any sort uh Draupadi is an enigma at all times um on the one hand she seems to be and and she even gives these lengthy uh speeches about a woman's duty and how a woman should be self-effacing in front of uh, her husband and so forth on the other hand she certainly isn't self-effacing and she's quite demanding and quite uh uh, uh quite noisy in her in making her objections known so Draupadi is like that uh Satyavati certainly is uh, a force uh in terms of directing the Bharata dynasty, um, Kunti, um, uh, all of these women, uh, though um, though the construction of womanhood is supposed to be uh, or, uh, that they're secondary characters as supporters or helpmates uh, of men, uh, they're really running the show either overtly or from or behind the scenes. Kunti is basically just a single mother of these five, uh, five, uh, five men that she's brought up. And um, so she, she's quite a powerful figure, uh, even if not uh, materially so. So uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, I'll give two examples, though. So my concern. Uh, one one of the things that I was intrigued with in that text, that which is where the title came from, "Woman as Fire, Woman as Sage." Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you have um, the understanding of a woman as a, as really a, a wise uh, figure, uh, as a, a somebody you know self possessed. Um, uh, of dignity, of great uh, compassion and insight uh, and knowledge. And on the other hand, uh, there are just like grossly misogynist passages where a woman is like fire, she'll burn you, she's like, she's like, She's a she's an untrustworthy snake. She's like the sharp edge of a razor. Uh, watch out for women. Mm. This is the sort of common language you can find in many traditions. Uh, well, pretty well. Are those are those lines about women in general? In general, or are they targeted at specific characters? No, no, they, they are. Uh, there are misogynist passages that just sort of throw this out there women are like this yeah. um and um so and then we can contextualize them to say who's talking here and mm. what's the context etc but they're misogynist passages common in, in in many traditions but um when you look at uh when you look at specific women uh it's a different story altogether so um um, the Mahabharata ideology on women is pretty. Uh, uh, so uh, again, uh, uh, what I'm what I established in that book is the Mahabharata speaks at multiple levels. If you're talking about women at this pedestrian, worldly level, uh, it's very conservative. If you're talking about at a more uh, enlightened level, uh, at a higher level, um, it's very it, it's. Uh, uh, it's extraordinarily um, what we might call progressive. Um, so, you know, simultaneously. And um, so I look at some of these, 
uh, look at some of these factors uh, in that book. Mm. So, Arthi, we have a question that came in actually from our, our online community. Yes. This is a question from uh, actually from our teaching assistant, Sabi Lal, who you'll be meeting soon. And yes. she, she uh, wants to know, um, do you have an earliest memory of the Mahabharata? Can you, can you recall what perhaps your earliest memory of the, of, of the text is? I, I I don't think I can. It's an interesting question. Um, you know, the um, the great scholar A.K. Ramanujan says uh, nobody. Uh, if you grew up in India, as I did my early years, um, he says no Hindu hears the Mahabharata for the first time. Mm. So it's. It's just, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's just, you know, it's part of your bloodstream, um, and it's just uh, just always been there. Do I, mean, I don't think I do. I, I didn't know the story until I started studying it, and of course there are the, the, the um, television phenomena, sure. uh, etc., I, want, uh, I knew through the Gita, maybe. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, the television series. Right. Did that, was that in the 80s? Um, and did. 90s. Oh, the 90s. Did that yeah. have any impact on you? Um, did it have any impact? On, I, you know, I, I was studying the text at the time, so okay. I didn't want to watch it, so I don't want to be influenced. I'm going to get modeled in my head. Yeah. I did eventually, I, I did eventually watch it. I mean, it's coming from very. Uh, from uh, a very particular perspective where it's a sacred uh, text uh, um, speaking to concerns of piety uh, and so forth. So um, that's obviously not how we approach it as scholars. Um, but it, uh, it was, it had the effect of um, reviving it for a generation. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a real likelihood um, that, uh, and uh, by the time you get to that, gen we got to that generation, or part, uh, maybe I'm part of that generation. I don't know. Um, a lot of these old texts would have been forgotten because we're all growing up and uh, much more uh, with a different type of education or more secular or quote-unquote uh, education and so forth um but it had the it had the effect of at the very least generating curiosity and interest among a uh, younger at that time younger um uh, younger Hin uh, indians uh, about uh, and and then reviving interest in scholarship and study of these texts so, yeah, and still today, I mean, whenever I've traveled in India and I stay at a hotel and you turn on the television, it's yeah. it's sort of like daytime television, but, you know, what we think of as soap operas here, you know, yeah. in, in American culture. But more so, but more so because uh, beyond that, because they're, they're watching these, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, the acts of piety. Yes. So it's like uh, for a lot of people, it's like, you know, going to the temple. Yeah, and, uh, you know, engaging in uh, some manner of uh, ritual contemplation. So it's 
know, sure. And there's there's Sanskrit touch. prayers that are layered throughout it, and um, yes, it's almost so, it's it's almost the act of puja on the television yes. for for many uh, Hindus, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it's beyond just a soap opera, though. It does have that quality. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's about um, uh, piety. Yeah. So you mentioned you you quoted Ramanujan this idea that it's sort of these these epics, both Ramayana and Mahabharata, they're sort of in the water, you know, yeah. uh, for for Indians. Uh, what tell me a little bit more just about how these stories have impacted Indian culture, you know, kind of throughout history, but yeah. but today as well. You know, as you you were saying, you couldn't recall a specific memory, but it's just always sort of there. I think that's yeah. important to think about when we talk about these themes, these women, these characters. We're going to we'll hopefully we'll get to a little bit about yoga here soon, but tell us a little bit about, you know, how these texts have impacted the culture. Uh, the so the great um literary critic Nortra Pry um has a mixed comment about western civilization. Um, and he says, you can't really understand Western civilization if you don't know the Bible. And by that, of course, he means the Christian version of the Bible with the Old Testament. You, tell, you don't know Bible stories. You don't understand. You, you don't you have a very shallow uh, understanding of, of Western civilization. Same thing can be said for um, um South Asia, um, maybe even uh, a, a good chunk of Southeast Asia, but certainly South Asia, uh, if you don't know the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. The Ramayana and the Mahabharata inform every aspect of um, cultural production in, uh, in South Asia. So you dance, music, history, philosophy, um, um, visual arts, performing arts, um, uh, you can't, uh, politics, think about politics today, uh, politics in the past, history, uh, kings in the past, for example, consciously um, um, appropriated um, uh, um, appropriated uh, images or uh, of a kingship, for example, uh, notions from uh, from these texts. Um, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, speak to uh, literally uh, every aspect uh, of their house uh, or kinship relations. You know, so you, uh, growing up in India, you don't need to say, well, be a good brother uh, to your siblings or et cetera. You know, be like Ram, be a good wife, be Sita, mm -hmm. right? You don't need to explain what that means. It, 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 everybody already uh, knows, uh, already uh, always knows uh, what 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 are the reference there? So um, they have uh, extraordinary impact. They continue to have extra. I mean, if, if we've known anything about the history of India for the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years, um, partly with the help of these television revivals, um, they're, um, they're the 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 characters of these texts, the stories of these texts have been mobilized, the ideas of these texts have been mobilized and put 
to uh, modern use, modern political use, social use, and so forth. So um, I don't think you can overstate uh, the impact of these texts uh, for South Asian cultures. Mm. All right. Now I'm tempted to ask you... Uh, as much in the diaspora, I should say. Not yeah. just in... Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, without going into, uh, you know, too much here, because we'll get into this as well in the, in the course, but what can we say about the role of yoga within the Mahabharata? Um, of course, there's the Bhagavad Gita, which we actually haven't really even discussed, uh, right. a very important episode within the Mahabharata. And I, yeah. and I think actually probably most listeners would be most familiar with the Mahabharata through their study of the Gita, yes. becoming familiar with the basic frame story of the Pandavas and the Kauravas in, you know, in the Mahabharata through the, the lens of the Gita. So I guess, you know, so we know the yoga of the Gita. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about how you kind of see yoga and yogis within uh, the Mahabharata kind of broadly. Well, yoga in the Mahabharata is clearly not the yoga of um, of uh, Lululemon and um, you know your your little mats that you carry into the the studio. Uh, yoga is a very serious um, a spiritual, a, 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 a religious spiritual affair. In terms of, it's about mastery. It's about self mastery. So it's. The yoga of uh, the Mahabharata is um, is let's put it this way: uh, the Gita speaks of how to become um, the the sthit pradnya, the 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 one established in wisdom. Uh, Mahabharata uh, yoga in the Mahabharata is geared toward um, achieving mastery of, of oneself, uh, achieving um, uh, control of one's emotions, uh, control of one's mind. Um, so, and, and, and then, you know, take it in, uh, and then to put to different purposes, uh, if you, if you want to. So, um, I, you know, the, there are so many things uh, that we can say about uh, about yoga, um, but essentially the uh, its primary uh, uh, criterion is self discipline, mm -hmm. um, self discipline of every sort. So of any sort uh, is a yogic practice. So discipline in terms of how we conduct ourselves, morally walk morally through the world, uh, how we, um, how uh, uh, of the things that we say, the things uh, that we think. Um, discipline in terms of our personal habits of uh, you know eating, drinking, uh, so forth. Um, so it's a habit of self-discipline, uh, sex, our relationships, our uh, our our uh, interaction with with other people, and um, through self-discipline, one gains uh, one gains control of oneself, uh, one gains control of one's mind, and then. Um, 
that that self control has uh, brings with it uh, calmness, uh, stability, uh, uh, centeredness, uh, equanimity. Equanimity is one of the uh, one of the the key goals of yogic practice uh, in um, in the Mahabharata. So um, I mean, you can see that right from the Gita, and um, yoga then is uh, can be put to higher ends, higher goals, or to um, to walking better, being uh, being more centered, being more at uh, calm and at peace uh, within the world itself. So that was a long-winded way of saying that uh, what is understood as yoga, certainly not to yoga study students perhaps, but out in the wider world, uh, is not what is understood uh, is only one tiny subset of what is uh, yoga in the Mahabharata, which is a very big, which is a much bigger affair, and it's about gaining, um, gaining. Uh, uh, Getting control of one's of oneself and particularly one's mind. So the Gita, for example, as you very well know, um, uses numerous metaphors to uh, get this point across. Right. So it's about it's uh, it's, it's the candle uh, in the wind, the flame in the wind. Uh, you want to be able to limit the turbulence uh, in in your mind so that you can keep the flame uh, steady uh, at the center. It's about uh, your mind being riven apart by uh, your desires, the wild horses of your desires. So what you want to do is control it so that you direct where your mind goes uh, rather than you know your desires uh, taking you in every direction. It's you know, the, the little, uh, the, the ship in the water in turbulent waters. Um, you you want to calm those waters so that um, uh, so to to steady the ship, which is your mind, uh, and so forth. So yoga is uh, in the Mahabharata is about uh, self mastery. It's about equanimity. It's about this kind of higher end um, purpose. Um, and uh, physical mastery is only one step, uh, the first step even toward that yeah and and i think because of the dating of this text um as we've talked about you know maybe roughly two thousand years ago uh i i would argue you know we do get some of the earliest evidence of yoga as a spiritual or soteriological discipline um throughout the mahabharata including the gita but but also elsewhere so uh that will be exciting to kind of read some of those passages and areas of, of the text maybe outside of the gita too where where yoga and asceticism and and these qualities of self-cultivation kind of appear so tell us um a little bit about the course coming up it's going to be a six-week online course as we've been describing the mahabharata is so vast we're obviously not going to be able to read sort of you know a hundred thousand verses in in in, in six weeks um, so how have you uh, structured the course and what can students expect who will be joining us? 
So uh, six weeks is not a lot that's going to, um, I was thinking about that, uh, two hours a week for six weeks adds up to, uh, no, not two hours a week, sorry. Um, um, three three hours, three hours, hours a week, two, two live to, sessions. Uh, adds up to 18 hours, which for the Mahabharata is a pretty special number. Hey, there you so, go. Right? Yeah. So, um so I think so. There's not a lot that can happen in, in the space of that time. Um, so to begin with, we're going to talk about uh, the narrative. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the central story. We're going to talk about um, the layers of that story, uh, the human levels, the divine levels, the the ways in which the um, the gods are involved in acting through uh, the humans uh, story. So uh, to begin with, we'll try, we'll get handle uh, on that. And it's a pretty crazy story, uh, a, a lot of fun. So we'll be doing some of that. And then we'll be looking at some of, uh, some of the big concerns um, emerging from the Mahabharata. So taking uh, a cue from uh, the Gita, for example. So Arjuna poised on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. Okay, and the, the the big debate about should I should I not engage in violence uh, and violence against my family? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, isn't it evil to engage in violence to kill your family, etc.? So it's, it's taking up the question of um, of violence of the propriety, the morality uh, of violence versus non-violence or, or the reverse non-violence versus violence. Um, and what does the Mahabharata want to do with that? So we've got uh, we've got uh, numerous traditions now uh, that are very concerned about non-violence, ahimsa, etc. Uh, these are concepts that are in the air in uh, at this historical period. How does the Mahabharata deal with this? Is an extraordinary. It's a text that represents extraordinary violence. Right, eighteen million people are going to die in horrid, gory ways, um, but. At the same time, it claims to be a text of shanti, of, of, of tranquility, of, of peace, of, of, of serenity, wants to bring you to serenity. So how, how, how should we think about uh, the notion of violence, uh, the, the, uh, the propriety of violence? That's one, so that's one point we'll, we'll look at. I want to look at some of the really quirky um, uh, characters, uh, the women characters, uh, in the text as well, because uh, that's a lot of fun for me. Um, so we'll probably look at some case uh, examples, um, and uh, we might talk about Draupadi, who's a, a figure of endless fascination, uh, and a few others. So uh, one week we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. I also want to look at um, the idea of God. So God and gods. Mm -hmm. uh, how should we understand that? Um, who's Krishna? Uh, how should we think of Krishna? Uh, what does God do? Uh, what is uh, the purpose of God? Uh, is God essential? Um, and, uh, uh, what's um, what's uh, what's uh, what's the character 
uh, of God. So these are some of the, uh, those are some of the points that I want to look at uh, in the second half of uh, this, the course in this kind of workshop fashion. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Well, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, for those who, who are interested in getting to study with Arti, to, to read the Mahabharata, um, actually tell us, there is a, we're going to use a particular version of the text to make it accessible for everyone. So you don't need to know Sanskrit to take this course. It will be kind of accessible to anybody who's interested. Um, maybe say a word uh, about the text. So we're going to use an abridged uh, translation of uh, the text uh, by John Smith. Uh, there's a penguin version. I usually have one with me here, but I don't think I okay. do uh, currently. Um, so it's it's uh, it's still a fairly hefty uh, a, a, a fairly hefty text. So we'll be using that abridged version. Uh, it uh, it's a, a pretty faithful translation of some of the most important scenes uh, of the text, or at, at least of the dramatic uh, scenes of the text, and um, which is basically all one, one can hope to do in a short period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So, yeah, the course is going to run live from October 3rd through November 11th, but if you're watching or listening to this after, then... Uh, itihasa, uh, it every, <laughs> it's done as it were, and uh, it's available for uh, self-study. Everything's been recorded. So thank you so much, RT. This was really a pleasure to get to chat with you. Thanks for making the time today. And absolute pleasure. And yeah. uh, we really look forward to to the course. And uh, we you know hope that many of you will consider uh, joining us for this deep immersion into. Um, uh, the Mahabharata, one of India's uh, and, and the world's great uh, epic tales. The story of everything. All right. Thanks, Arti. We'll be in touch soon. And thanks, uh, as always, to our, our viewers and our listeners. Um, please uh, take care. And until next time. Bye.